Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Hi, my name's John Carasella, and I'm your host for Convergence on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Convergence is to consciousness as gravity is to the material world. In small amounts, gravity is overwhelmed by every other fundamental force of the universe. But gravity has something nothing else has. It's cumulative. The more matter you collect, the more gravity you get until it becomes the most powerful force of the material world. I think convergence is like that too. Only in this case, we're working with truth. The more truth we collect, the more convergence we experience. Connections, relationships, resonance of ideas and concepts, science and mysticism. Lately, deep truths just seem to be coming together, even as many of the illusions around us are falling apart. As within, so without. As above, so below. I know I'm feeling it, and I'll bet you are too. For the next 90 minutes, we'll be exploring concepts and topics that in some way or another bring us around to a deeper truth. Join me and my guests for this week's experience of Convergence. And thanks for joining us for today's program. Coming up, John will take us on a journey exploring reality by sharing lessons learned from the family dog. Then he'll have a spirited conversation with scholar and teacher of Celtic shamanism, Tom Cowan, author of Fire in the Head. And he'll share his insights on control versus mastery. If you have questions or want to participate in today's program, sign in and join us in the chat room at blogtalkradio.com. Next up, the Firefly Willows LIVE Roundtable is an opportunity for all of our hosts to come together and share their thoughts, experience, and insights on a variety of topics. Listen in as each host takes a turn as moderator. Mildred Lynn McDonald on Healing Conversations, Heisey Luckmers on Revolution, and today, John Caracella on Convergence with our topic, Personal Sovereignty. Good morning and welcome to this morning's Firefly Willows LIVE Roundtable. I'm your host, moderator John Carousella, with my co-hosts, Heisey Lutmer, Mildred Lynn McDonald, Deb Carousella, and a special guest co-host, Joe, my, my friend Joe. <laughs> uh, also, also co-hosting with us this morning are two four-legged friends, Pops and Bodie. So if you hear some rather unusual contributions to this morning's roundtable, it's likely to be Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I, I wanted to uh, broach the topic of control of the self or personal sovereignty, self-sovereignty. We have a natural desire to exert control and experience control of our environment, uh, of our surroundings, of our interactions in, uh, with others. But we also have a desire and a need at times to exert self-discipline, self-control. And in my travels and my studies, I've found the phrase personal sovereignty has powerful meaning for me in that it represents a perspective on my own ability to be in charge of my life. 
And I thought I'd throw that out as a topic for discussion t for us to reflect on what are the ways in which we feel that we can exert control over our lives and, and experience control over our lives. And how do we do that and what does it feel like? Well, John, for me, when you're using the word control, I immediately go to the word responsibility. So I would replace control with responsibility, taking responsibility for myself, for my life, for my interactions with people. So I would throw back at you, what's the difference between responsibility and control? Well, this is interesting <coughs> because a lot of times we think of control as a coercive force and responsibility as a mantle that we wear, right? And so, but there are times, that I, I imagine, there certainly have been times in my life where I haven't felt like I've had control even though I felt like I've had an obligation for responsibility. And so there's a kind of self-growth and challenge or obstacle that gets planted in front of you when you're not in control but you are responsible. And that's not just necessarily just with your, within yourself, but it's also in terms of your relationship with family, your children, your, your work environment, and so on and so forth. So I think, they're, I think they're interesting aspects of a condition, you know, where someone is seeking a course of action that may be experiencing resistance. That course is not, that the way is not clear. So that's kind of how I would contrast mm -hmm. control and responsibility. I'm... I think of personal sovereignty um, very much along the lines of, uh, similar to the topic we talked about last week, which was independence and interdependence. A fascinating discussion on the <laughs> July 8th archive, in case you want to check it out. Um, but as was discussed last week on last week's program about independence and interdependence, um, I stated that independence is something that I feel very strongly about. It's something that I've always felt a need for and, and, and a very strong resonance with. Not that my actions weren't also connected to the greater world. Obviously, I can't do whatever I want and whenever I want. And I also can't live my life. I can't produce the gas for my car. I can't even make my car, you know, by myself. I need the greater community. But my ability to determine my own course, what feels right for me and what I accept and don't accept, the dictates of society or the pressures of society were, well, that might not be best for you, maybe you should concentrate on this, th that kind of thing. I don't like those kinds of restrictions. I've always felt very boxed in by that kind of a restriction. Now, I might personally choose or even agree with something, but I don't want anybody to tell me that. Mm. I don't like being told, and I've never liked being told. Just look at my report cards from when I was a child. <laughs> so personal sovereignty for me is the ability to make my own decisions, to be not only responsible for my actions, but self-determining in my actions. And I think that applies, you know, we, we see that in a more global sense. When you think of the term sovereign and a sovereign country, it's that idea that a country has the ability to determine its own fate or its own direction rather than being occupied or imposed upon by another force, whether it's a military force or another country or something like that. I think nations are forced with that challenge when they exercise their sovereignty, right? There's any nation that even declares or tries to maintain sovereignty is still a participant 
in some global stage, and there are going to be there's going to be trade decisions they make. There's going to be alignment decisions in terms of defense that they will make. But still, there's plenty to exercise in terms of sovereignty, in terms of choosing free will, but exercising it perhaps responsibly. I'm glad Debbie brought society into it because uh, we talked a little bit about before about the Four Agreements book by Don Miguel Ruiz. When you make agreements with society, you often diminish your commitments to yourself. And so getting back to some personal sovereignty and not being such a subject to uh, society's pressures and not letting down society is a way to exercise that personal sovereignty. And yet, in my pathway to, to pursue spirituality, it's involved letting go of some of that control, letting go of some of that sovereignty to feel vulnerable to things that I can't control. And it wasn't until I pursued that change did my mind start to open up to things that are bigger than me. And so it's almost, there's a little bit of a, there's some irony in there, I think, about, you know, the personal sovereignty to engage how you carry yourself in relation to others, but then relative to something even greater, it's exercising some sovereignty that includes an openness to a loss of control. I think that's perceptive. You know, I'm fond of saying there is no correct path. There's only the path you choose. And along the path that you choose, there are the lessons that you get to learn. And I feel like personal sovereignty is a lot about getting to choose the path and receiving the lessons that come with those choices. And I think we can get distracted by the social agreements that we create, that we craft. You know, Don Miguel Ruiz calls that the domestication of the, of the self. And, you know, the domestication and wildness are, are two very different states of being. And wildness is not secure. It's not safe. It's subject to all kinds of external forces and implications and aspects. So intrinsic to it is a, a vulnerability to loss of control. But if you ask a wild animal, would they rather be domesticated and safe or wild and vulnerable, they're going to say, give me the open forest. Give me the open forest, too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it it also makes me think of the example that you gave, because then people get caught up in feeling as if they somehow have a right to personal sovereignty, and then they start to lose sight of the fact that other people also should be allowed that. And the example I'm referring to is when you talked about a parent and child. Because a parent will often try too hard to control the child's direction, choices. Even after they're adult and out of the home, they still tend to meddle, (laughs) let us say. Mm. And it's that unwillingness to let go of the control because people are so afraid of what they don't have control over that they somehow think that's going to threaten their own safety or sovereignty or something. Well, that's fair, right, because we don't live... In isolation, we, we, no man is an island, so every decision you make at some level has an impact on me. The question is whether it has enough of an impact on me for me to get upset about it, right? You know, like uh, an industry analogy is the, the coal-burning plants in the Midwest spewing the sulfur dioxide from their stacks, which created acid rain, which fell on the forests of New York State, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. There's sovereignty involved in burning coal. But it clearly has an impact on the force and the life in the force and the quality of life of the people 
who lived in New York State. How do you balance those two apparently conflicting notions of sovereignty? What do we do? Well, personal sovereignty says I should at least have the ability to make my own choices. So therefore, I should at least be able to be informed of this is going on in my community, this is how it affects the environment or whatever in my community, and therefore I can take that information and choose whether to continue to subject myself to it by living there or to, to move. But what's being taken away is on the corporate level, they don't see their role or responsibility in sovereignty, which is we shouldn't have to tell people this. And therefore, that's actually taking away the sovereignty of the individual. Yeah, you could say the same with GMO foods, right? We don't know what's in our food supply. You know, how do I have sovereignty over choices that I make for what food to eat? So, John, for you, what would be your um, best equation for personal sovereignty that would work with who you are? It really comes down to uh, owning the consequences of my actions, fundamentally, and seeing the consequences for what they are. They're not just related and isolated to to me. You know, the Lakota have a saying that when they enter or leave a place, they say, all my relations, metapioyasin. And it's a statement of the fundamental relatedness of everything, and therefore your impact on it, in, with, it with every breath and with every choice, you're impacting all of your relations. And I think the challenge comes in reflecting on the consequences. Making wise choices, sure. And also, you know, the other thing is we don't always get to make all the choices we want to make. Sometimes our, our range of operation is limited, right? If you're in prison, for example, the domain of your choices is reduced. But you can still be sovereign. You can still have self-sovereignty because you can make choices that continue to reflect your will given the circumstances. Mm -hmm. I know what my, the, the expression that keeps coming up for me and when you're talking about personal sovereignty is, and I was listening to when you were talking about the coal plants and the air, you know, the, the beautiful gift that was passed mm -hmm. along to New York, is uh, do no harm. So if you had the stance within to look at the decisions and choices you were making from that perspective, you know, first do no harm, I think that would be kind of easy to live with. I would say yes, but I, I think that sovereignty, as much as we talk about governments and countries having sovereignty, I, I think on one level, yes, that's true. Um, and Bodhi does too. <laughs> but I think ultimate, and what you're asking about, even by using the phrase, is I think that ultimately though sovereignty rests with the individual. Sovereignty is personal. And so doing no harm is a tricky phrase. That's why I used it. Because I think it's important for that to apply when you are thinking of how does my personal sovereignty impact the personal sovereignty of someone else. But I don't think that you can start to see companies, governments, etc. as the equivalent in having the same kind of sovereignty. And... I don't think that we can necessarily apply or view those kind of entities in the same way and think that I can't cause harm when there is a need to do something that could be perceived as harmful even to the people because if you do revolution and bring the government down, that's going to create hardship for the people in the country in order to bring about that change. I think do no harm is, is maybe an extreme 
way to talk about, John, what you refer to as just being accountable for your actions, right? So personal sovereignty, free will, I make my choices, they're not imposed upon me by others, so I have my personal sovereignty. Now, I have to be accountable for my actions and for my choices, and so if I choose to harm others, I'm going to be dealing with consequences of that, and that's going to, I'm going to have to now wrestle with that and in my place, right, in the greater whole. I like to get back to what one of the things I see said, which was about parents and uh, and their children, right? I think great parents teach personal sovereignty to their children. They bestow upon them an ability to judge the world themselves and to make good choices. I think most parents meddle with their children because they're so deeply vested in their safety and their success. They can't help but protect them and think about what will be best for them. And it's just very, as a parent, very hard to separate from that because you have a visceral investment that you just you don't even know about. You, you don't even realize how deep it is. It affects your behavior. In some instances as well, in, in particular with the parent-child relationship, unfortunately, in many instances, the child is an extension. The parent feels that the child is an extension of them, and hence the meddling the overwhelming desire to control what happens, you must be the best that I can produce mm -hmm. because otherwise, you know, the neighbor's son does this, why aren't you doing this? Mm -hmm. The neighbor's kid does that and, you know, you play video games. and Or you have to be what I wasn't. Or so you have to be what I, I wasn't. I failed at being a doctor and just became a plumber. Therefore, I need to control you to become a doctor so that I can live out that yes. and feel that success vicariously. And in the process, we often take the best qualities that they'll need as adults and we really suppress them. Mm -hmm. We suppress their independence, which is what they're going to need, ironically, to have personal sovereignty as healthy adults yeah, exactly. while we're imposing these things that right. we're often not aware of. Right. But then there's the other side of the coin, too, when that parents have wisdom because they've already walked the path. So how do you integrate that into the equation? Well, you don't impose it. You offer it, and yeah. then you allow the child to decide how they're going to or not listen to and use that information or that wisdom or that guidance. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a perimeter that you try to establish around your children that creates a safe haven in which they can choose and be responsible for the consequences. And the, In hindsight, 2020, right? Maybe not, but at closer to 2020 now than it was when I was actually actively raising my children. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I realized that the goal really was, you know, would have been more productive for me to create that perimeter and then coach them through decisions that I felt they were ready to comprehend, right? To, their cognitive process was mature enough to realize, oh, if you choose this, this is the consequence. If you choose that, that's the consequence. Either consequence... Neither is fatal, neither is terminal, but you get the idea having made your choice, right? And I think I failed to do that, and instead I coerced them down the path of quote-unquote wisdom, which turns out was wisdom that was infested with my own wounds, right? So it really turned out to not be very wise wisdom, <laughs> right? And so in the process, I transferred some of those wounds to my kids, Right? And I think parents do that without realizing it, that, that they drive their kids down paths that they p personally experienced to be more successful paths, but they were more successful paths in part because the parent has wounds that made that the path. Mm -hmm. And boy, that is, that's not a recipe for personal sovereignty for your kids. 
<laughs> but personal sovereignty, also going back to the responsibility, says I have to not make that an excuse. So if a parent can't just say, well, you know, I ended up abusing my child because I was abused as a child. Well, that that's you don't get to just excuse it that way. You have to take responsibility for what you chose to do as yourself. Mm-hmm. And if the child then becomes an abuser, you have to at least take partial responsibility for what you did to perhaps create an environment or to somehow trigger that right. kind of behavior. Now, right. they have to then take responsibility as an adult as well for what they're doing, but personal sovereignty also means not making excuses for by blaming someone or something outside of me for what it is that I have chosen to do or who I am. So we're about out of time. I think uh, I would invite our listeners to contemplate the ways in which you can be an authority in the decisions in your own life, in the, even in the presence of structures and constraints that might make you feel limited. Hopefully, you can still always express your personal sovereignty. So thanks very much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for our roundtable this week. Many thanks to this week's moderator, John Carousella, and participants Mildred Lynn McDonald, Deb Carousella, Heisey Lutmers, and our guest. We hope you found this roundtable discussion engaging and thought-provoking. If you would like to join the conversation, visit facebook.com slash fireflywillows and add your comment under this week's roundtable post. Stay tuned. I guess it was a pretty typical evening around here. I had been meditating, doing some deep journey work, contemplating the nature of God and the divine. I was contemplating the limits of my own awareness and what connection I had with God and what connection God had with me and through me into the world. I was asking questions like, how much of me was my higher self? What was the nature of my higher self anyway? And what was the difference between my higher self and God? Was there separation? There must be, because my higher self has a lot of my personality in it, minus my dysfunctions, I figure. And God was, well, more than that. I took a break. I came in from the fire to refresh myself with a little something. And as I grabbed that little something out of the fridge, our trusty family dog, always on alert for an important mission, was at my feet. Of course. I looked down at him, smiled, and said, No, Tucker, this is not for doggies. This is for Daddy. And as usual, he looked up at me with friendly mischief in his eyes, trying to convince me to change my mind. But this time, something miraculous happened. This time I saw something I had never seen before. And it brought a whole bunch of things suddenly into focus. I saw Tucker not as a dog, but as a divine consciousness, experiencing reality through a dog's body, through a dog's equipment, so to speak. Just as I was God, experiencing reality through my equipment, my body, my fears and dysfunctions and habits and patterns. Tucker was divine consciousness too, trying to express itself and experience itself. This moment, this realization was was not an abstraction. It was very real and visceral and grounded and present. I was catapulted back to a common activity that Tucker and I share. We have a beautiful, bountiful orange tree in our backyard. 
From the time Tucker was a youngster, I would go pluck myself an orange, sit down on a lawn chair, peel it, and eat it. Of course, as often as not, Tucker was there with me. And being a dog, he would nose his way into the action. One for you, one for me. Back and forth with each slice of the orange. After a while, I would tire, or just be full of oranges, but Tucker never seemed quite satisfied. Eventually, I would pluck an orange and break it in half, or just crack the peel, and leave the whole thing for him as I went inside and pursued other human antics. Tucker loves oranges. Eventually, he would learn to pluck the oranges from the tree himself. But there was always something subtly different about sitting together. He enjoyed picking his own fruit and eating it. He enjoyed the fruit if I picked it and peeled it and gave the whole thing to him. But there was nothing he enjoyed more. Nothing, honestly, that he enjoys more than one for you and one for me. Suddenly, it all made sense. He's not a dog looking for food. He's divine consciousness looking for a shared experience. What is the purpose of God in creation? It's been theorized that it's all about God having the opportunity to experience himself in and through the infinite diversity of the creation. So there he was, peeking out at me through Tucker's eyes. And when I greeted him that way, there was a smile of recognition and almost a sigh of relief, as if he had been waiting a very long time for me to see him and greet him and share with him in that way. When I abstract myself upwards from the mundane, profane experience of every day, I realize that there is a great force of consciousness that is squeezed perilously and imperfectly through my small and limited physical self. And there are great swaths of it that I glimpse only erratically and imperfectly and often that I won't let through things like forgiveness and charity and joy what gets in the way are things like immaturity petulance and self-righteousness and fear mostly fear and looking at Tucker I saw that there could be no fear there could be just the differences between us between our instrumentation, so to speak, and the delight in experiencing the same thing, a slice of orange, through these different instruments, and trying to share what that's like with each other, simply by being together and enjoying the experience together. Then what unfolded for me was a greater landscape of the divine. Everything around me became the divine, became divine consciousness experiencing. The orange tree was divine consciousness experiencing the creation through the instrument of an orange tree. The empty wine bottle became divine consciousness experiencing what it was like to be a wine bottle formed from sand, assessed for purity and clarity and reliability and, and filled with an elixir to be enjoyed but patiently waiting to be tapped, to be called upon to pour out libations. And I stepped back in horror at my own now foolish inability to recognize the divine in the wine bottle. 
The Lakota people talk about the grandfathers that are the rocks that they put in the fire for the sweat lodge. They say that the stone people are among the wisest because they have great knowledge, great wisdom. I considered suddenly how this observation might be true. A rock has been the divine experiencing reality for a very, very long time. It has the lens, the experience of a geologic age and yet a presence in this reality on this planet. How much can a rock experience? I don't know. But I realize that the ever-increasing expression of life, the increasing complexity of life on this planet, might be God's way of adapting, growing, and getting more stimulation from His experiment. I realize that's probably why God is such a fan of sexual reproduction. All that mixing and experiencing from all those new and ever so slightly different perspectives. All the pollen mixing in the air from all the trees and all the flowers. And all the antics of all the animals. Courting and mating and having young. And apart from reproduction, I realize that's probably why sex feels so amazing for us humans. There's something about the mingling of experience the sharing of experience that reaches some kind of pinnacle in sex and great sex leads us further out into that rarefied territory how do we experience the divine in our lives it suddenly became a lot easier when I realized that everything around me is the divine trying to experience me we're not alone far from it we're all in this together. We're all a slice of the divine consciousness in this soup of togetherness so that we can come to know it and in the process come to know ourselves. We'll be right back. Firefly Willows is excited to announce a new workshop, The Magical Roots of Reiki, Bringing Forth What is Hidden. Participants in this workshop will explore the esoteric knowledge hidden within Reiki, delve deep into its history, meaning, and mystical source, and experience firsthand the power that powers Reiki. Join us in Los Altos, California in July 2012 as we host Jose Figueroa Garcia, Director of Natural Therapies of Oslo, Norway. Jose offers this workshop in English and his native Spanish. Visit FireflyWillows.com for more details. Welcome back to Convergence. I'm your host, John Carousella, and my guest for today's spirited conversation is Tom Cowan. Tom is a shamanic practitioner specializing in Celtic visionary and healing techniques. He's an internationally respected teacher, author, lecturer, and tour leader, and has taught across Europe as well as here in the United States. Tom is the author of a number of books, including Yearning for the Wind, Celtic Reflections on Nature and the Soul, and Fire in the Head, Shamanism and the Celtic Spirit. Tom's formal training in shamanism began with Michael Harner at the Foundation for Shamanic Studies. He has since studied with the Foundation, as well as other teachers of shamanism and spirituality. His lifelong interest in mystical traditions led him to develop ways to practice shamanism in the context of Celtic spirituality. In this, Tom combines core shamanism with traditional European spirit lore to create distinctly Celtic shamanic practices. Tom serves on the board of directors of the Society of Shamanic Practitioners, that's shamansociety.org. 
and he lives in New York's Hudson River Valley, where he offers training, workshops, spiritual retreats, and healing sessions for groups and individuals. Tom can be reached at www.riverdrum.com. I know you'll enjoy our conversation today. Welcome, Tom Cowan. Thank you. So, Tom, uh, it's it's good to be talking with you again. I, I always love having the chance to study with you and work with you. But one of the things that I haven't done with you is go on one of your tours to the British Isles. Uh, are you planning any of those soon? Because I, I looked at riverdrum.com and I didn't see any. Well, you know, I don't think I will be doing any soon. I, the last one we did was in 2000, and so it's been, what, 12 years. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I have taught over there since then, uh, and I think in the future it might be more a uh, question of just going over and doing a retreat or workshop and teach, but oh. not so much uh, running all over the country. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, that must have been enjoyable, though. Oh, it was, yeah. Uh, we always took a rather small group of like not more than 20, 25 people. And uh, we had our own van and transportation. And we went to all the mystical sites and the sacred sites in Ireland and Scotland and uh, spent a lot of time there doing shamanic work, ceremony, meditation, things like that. There's a lot of uh, interest in, I guess, in the U.S. Uh, as well in in the sacred waters and sort of reviving our attentiveness to and care for sacred waters, wells, and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. is, was that some of the stuff that you did when you were over in, in the British Isles? Yeah, we did. We went to a number of wells. There's wells all over Ireland and Scotland. And, you know, the Irish used to be called the people of the wells. I don't know if they're still called that or not, but they had a real reverence and love for, you know, that kind of mysterious place where water comes up out of the earth and it's always kind of fresh and clean. And so we, we did some a lot of ceremonies around wells and the uh, stone circles and the dolmens and the passage graves and things like that, too. Mm. Well, sounds fantastic. Uh, you know, the whole connection between the Celtic tradition, the Celtic way, and what we, those of us who have studied with the Foundation for Shamanic Studies and, and Michael Harner's work, um, the, the notion of, sh of shamanism, as opposed to Wicca, you know, I think there's always been a, uh, a popular correlation between the Celtic way and Wicca. But the yeah. connection between the Celts and shamanism was something that, my perception was that I had no notion of this until I read Fire in the Head. Mm -hmm. How did you find it? Well, in some ways, uh, I've known about Celtic spirituality for a long time because uh, you know, I grew up in a family that is Scots-Irish and Welsh and English and also German. But I can't say that uh, the family was practicing Celtic spirituality, but I was always aware of the fact that the Irish and the Scots and the Welsh had a kind of uh, more mystical view of Christianity and, and had a view that uh, the sacred is right here in nature, right here in the earth. There was much less of a split between what we, in shamanism we call ordinary reality and non-ordinary reality. So when I started practicing shamanism, I really just... Uh, knew early on that I wasn't going to do it in a Native American way, although I studied and hung out with some Native American teachers. But I knew that wasn't my path, so I started looking back into the European traditions. And I uh, was trained, trained as an historian back in the 60s, and I taught history 
uh, the college level for about 10 years. So, you know, looking into the past and studying the past and looking at folkways and healing practices and earlier forms of spiritual devotions, I mean, that that wasn't alien to me. I, I had been doing that anyway as an historian. So um, I just focused more acutely, I guess, at looking at things that smacked of shamanism. And since I knew what a shaman was and I had what I like to think of as shaman eyes, I could look at all those old tales and myths and practices that have been around a long time and see if they uh, looked like shamanism. And many of them did and, and do, as you know. So that's sort of how I fell into it, I guess. I got the impression that it was a process of uh, of almost like archaeological excavation, or at least anthropological excavation. It is. It is. I think of myself that way, too, that I'm digging around in the past. And I shouldn't just say the past, because people still practice some of these shamanic techniques and healing practices today. They may not call it shamanism. That was the tricky part, is, is that it didn't seem to me like it was, it didn't look like shamanism. It looked like folktales. Yeah, well, that, that's true. <laughs> and they are folktales and fairy tales, but my approach was always to, to keep digging around in those tales and those legends and look for shamanism. And it's there because all those tales go back to tribal times and, you know, pre even pre-Christian times. Mm. So there's bound to be shamanic elements in those tales. Well, it's certainly Fire in the Head lit that up for me in a, in a very big way. I, I thank you very much for producing that work. It's, it was terrific. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when I first studied with you, one of the first things we talked about were the Tuatha de Danann and the Fomorians. Mm-hmm. And I think our listeners might find a little bit of grounding in the overall Celtic experience helpful. So can you share a little about the history of, of Donna and, and the she and so on? Uh, well, thousands of books have been written on this, so I'll try to you know, give it to you in a nutshell here. But um, it's, I guess it's like uh, any early indigenous people is that they believed in the spirit world, the Celts. And like other indigenous people, they see some of the spirits as friendly and helpful and others as bringing chaos and destruction. And so in the Irish tradition, the spirits are the gods who brought civilization and law and music and healing and uh, knowledge and wisdom were called the Tuatha de Danann, the children of the goddess Dana. And they saw the other camp of spirits or gods as the Fomorians who um, are not necessarily evil gods but they always bring a sense of disruption or chaos they're often seen in the weather when it gets ferocious like tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis and forest fires and uh, and just you know things that go wrong and eventually the these early tales about these gods become kind of uh, watered down, you might say, and they become tales about the fairy world. Uh, and so these same two groups are seen among the fairies, uh, as some of them are helpful and some of them are mischievous. Mm-hmm. And as I was saying, most indigenous cultures have some kind of a sense of the spirits that help us and the spirits that hinder or harm us. 
and that's what the, mm-hmm. the Donnans and the Fomorians are. So the Tuatha Dé Danann and the Shi are the same? Pretty much. Do we, do we... Uh, the Shi is a word that, I don't know when it was first used, but it's been around for centuries to mean both the fairy world and the spirits that live in the fairy world. Some of them are fairies, and some of them are ancestors. There's, there are beliefs in various places that when you die, you go to the Shi. And there's also beliefs that when the Tuatha Dé Danans became invisible, there was a belief that at one point they lived right here in ordinary reality and had bodies something like ours, but they disappeared. Other cultures have stories of an earlier race that disappeared also, like, like the Anasazi, for example, or Atlantis. So when the Danans in the Fomorians disappeared or became invisible, they went into the Shi as well. So the Shi is kind of a big, broad term that can mean a lot of things. But yes, so the Donans are in the Shi, and in some sense they're part of the fairy world and the fairies themselves. Mm. So there's so much that I want to talk about with you. <laughs> I want to share. Uh, there, I have a list here. Uh, I want you to say something about about Lou, about the Oren Moor, about Taliesin, and about Finn McCool. Okay. And I think, let, let's start with Finn McCool, because his name is so cool. Okay, yes, he has a cool name. Um, he's something like uh, the Robin Hood story in England. He's an Irish character, and many commentators think he was at one time one of the gods. But the stories about him usually don't emphasize that. They're, he's thought of more as just a supernatural being or even a historic character. But he uh, lives in the woods. He has a band of men called the Finians and, and their women who live in the, in the forests. And they're something like hunters and warriors. Sometimes they uh, help defend a king against enemies. But they tend to live outside the law, outside of society. They have their own laws. And so many of the tales about Finn McCool and his men are tales about encountering the spirit world. So they live in the forest, and the forest is, has always been like an entry into the spirit world for the Celts. And it's the spirit world itself. The forest has a kind of dual nature. So Finn McCool then becomes kind of a leader of these mystical warriors and hunters, and even they're considered shamans. Uh, who know how to slip into the other world, and they have adventures with uh, the fairy world and the spirits there. They're a really interesting source of shamanic lore, if you're, we were talking earlier. As you look around for Irish shamanism, you couldn't do better than just to read some of the stories about Finn McCool. Are there convenient uh, sources of Finn McCool stories? Well, there are and there aren't. There's, as I said, there's thousands of books written on so many Celtic topics, and they all have similar names, like Irish fairy tales, Irish mm-hmm. folk tales, Irish legends, Celtic legends, mm-hmm. Celtic folk tales, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so okay. I, I hesitate to try to say, well, here's the best one. You know, the, with the Internet, if you really just wanted to um, Google Sigma Cool and see what's there, you'd, you'd find a lot of material. Okay. Well, that's... And then a lot of his stories, too, are, they do get stuck in these bigger anthologies of Irish tales or Celtic tales. So it's kind of hard to point somebody in one direction. Right. Okay. So Finn McCool, it was, uh, what I liked about Finn McCool 
was that he lived in the forest and he was uh, a slippery character in that he slipped back and forth between this reality and the and the other world. Yeah. But Taliesin was a different different kind of character, though. Well, Taliesin is Welsh and uh, basically known as a, a bard, a poet, a seer. Sometimes, like Merlin, he's thought of to be like a wizard. But wizard is a tricky word. Uh, in some ways, it means doing what shamans do or doing what healers do or doing what psychics do. But anyway, he's this type of character, very similar to Merlin, although he's known, I guess, primarily as a poet. And uh, he has an interesting origin because he seems to have been born like three times. <laughs> he was a boy named Gwen, and then the goddess Caradwen hired him to tend her cauldron that was meant to bring a potion of uh, wisdom to her son. But little Gwyn got it and became wise. And then so Caradwen chases him around, and eventually he shapeshifts and she shapeshifts, and they go back and forth in different animals and birds and things. Finally, uh, she devours him, and she becomes pregnant by him and gives birth to him again, and, and then puts him in a bag and throws him out in the ocean where he is sort of like in the womb of the sea for 30 or 40 years and gets washed up on shore and he's still a little baby but he has a real bright shining face but full of wisdom and knowledge that the man who finds him calls him Taliesin which means uh, radiant brow or shining face something like that and he grows up uh, you know to become this all-powerful poet seer and wizard so he is, but he's different than Finn McCool, although might have some similar powers, but he's not an outlaw living in the forest. He's more or less a character who, like Merlin, kind of hangs around courts and kings. Yes, he's a courtly fellow. A courtly fellow, yeah. So those are, those are two very interesting, very contrasting aspects of the shamanic way for the Celts. One is a an adventurer in the woods, and the other is a bard and uh, court guy. Yeah, right. In some ways, uh, Taliesin is kind of like a druid, I think, sort of like Merlin, too. He becomes an advisor to, uh, you know, courtly mm. uh, realms and courtly people. But the reason he can be an advisor or he can, he's got, you know, wise counsel is that he does have this this interesting connection with the other world of having been born out of the, the goddess's womb mm. and having been born out of the sea. Mm. Interesting. Okay, so now there's a lot of talk uh, and, and a lot of focus in the Celtic way on the goddess. Yeah. Uh, Donna and Bridget and so on. Lou is a little a little counterpoint, counterbalance to that. Tell, yeah, tell, well, tell us about Lou. <laughs> He's interesting from the point of view that he's partly a Donnan and partly a Fomorian. His mother was a Fomorian, but his father was a Donnan. So he has the nature of both. And he's a well-loved character because he he's good at many things. In fact, one of his nicknames is he's the, the god who has all the skills. Uh, the story about him is that when he finally decides he's going to go to Terra and live with his other's people, the Donans. He has to have a skill to get through the gates of Terra. And the gatekeeper asks him what he can do, and he says, well, I'm a carpenter. And the gatekeeper says, we have a carpenter. And he says, I'm a poet. 
And they say, we have a poet. He says, I'm a healer. We have a healer. He says he's a warrior, a hunter, and goes on and on, and a musician and so forth. And they, they, the gatekeeper says, we have all those people. And Lou says, well, do you have anyone who has all those skills, who's good at all those things? And the gatekeeper says, no, we, we, we don't. So he said, well, then I'm different because I do have all the skills. <laughs> and uh, they let him in. And so he becomes uh, a kind of god or spirit for being able to do things well. He has skillful means, as the Buddhists might say. And some of the stories about him get told over the years, and he becomes a character that today we call the jack-of-all-trades. And, you know, jack-of-all-trades is very similar to Lou, who has all the skills. And he can be kind of a scamp or kind of a trickster figure because he wears all these different hats, and he can look at things from so many different points of view. He's not limited to just looking at it as a, as a carpenter or as a hunter or as a warrior. But he can see things from many different sides, and that ability to see things from many sides has always been considered to be a, a mark of wisdom among the Celts. When I think of that particular characteristic, I think of human beings, right? The contrast between human beings and our, our more specialized brothers who are, you know, the trees or the mm-hmm. wolves or, uh, you know, the rabbits or the beavers. They, they seem to be a more specialized kind of perceiver uh, and actor in this, in, on the stage of creation, whereas humans are these very general, general purpose kind of mm-hmm. creatures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Perhaps that's there, I have an affinity for the character and and role of Lou because he seems like he's more like mm-hmm. one of us. Well, he is, and that's you know as I was saying earlier, the Tuatha Dé Danans in some ways are not so much gods as just supernatural people or people who are highly evolved or are more perfect than we are today. And, and as I mentioned, other cultures you know have similar stories about a race of people who lived back at the beginning of time and who were more highly evolved than we are and, and who in some ways have the original instructions of how to live on the earth, how to live decently and reverently and sustainably. And that at some point, this race of people disappeared or they consciously decided to retreat into the invisible places in the earth and let us humans, people that are you know, more human and filled with more faults than they, take over and see what we can make out of the earth. But they're always there to help us. That's one of the uh, things that you know from shamanism that we, all, we know, is that those spirits are there and you know we can journey to them and create a practice or a devotion around them and they can help us be human beings because you know, it's not easy being a human being, as somebody once said. Mm, no, it's not. So with that in mind, uh, one of the things that I wanted to talk about today was sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Right, our you know you know our self determination. Our what is it? What does personal sovereignty mean? What is it? How do you define it? And and I think it has a has a major role in 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 the Celtic way. So maybe if you can contextualize that, what is it and how does it fit into the the Celtic traditions? Sure. Well, the word itself is I guess somewhat strange to us because we 
today I think when we hear the word sovereign, we think of a, a nation, you know, a sovereign nation, or we think of a monarch, you know, the sovereign, Queen Elizabeth or whatever. Uh, but Webster's definition really is not so much about politics and nations. It's more about being able to have autonomy and independence and, you know, govern yourself, uh, direct yourself, have freedom to uh, decide what you want to do, take charge of your life. Uh, it, it's not to say that, you know, we never have to have any outside influence on what we do. We're not totally sovereign or totally independent. So we have to live in society and we have to live, uh, you know, in this physical world that has limitations. But the ideal is there that um, to be able to take charge of your life and to make decisions of how your life will go, I mean, that's that's one of the, uh, I guess, one of the ideals or values that human beings everywhere have always valued. And in some of the uh, Irish and Celtic stories, uh, sovereignty is a woman or a goddess, and she's also the goddess of the land. So there's a connection then between honoring the land and being close to the land and listening to the land speak and having sovereignty. So one way that this uh, gets expressed in the Celtic world is that the king only has authority to be king and to rule over other people because he's married to the goddess of the land whose name is sovereignty. So the king himself as an embodiment of sovereignty you know, has all these characteristics of being independent and autonomous and making decisions and all. But he's not totally uh, free because he has to honor what the goddess of the land wants. And you know, she's the great mother. She's the source of life. So when the king is inaugurated, he's really married to the land rather than inaugurated. In fact, the Irish language, I don't know if this is still true today or not, but uh, for a long time the Irish language did not have a word for inauguration. When a king or a leader was assumed office, it was considered to be a marriage. They used the word for marriage for that ceremony because it was very clear that the ruler only had power and authority and uh, legitimacy because the ruler spoke for the land who is the god of sovereignty. Mm. So that's part of, uh, of, of how that fits in. Should we talk about the, uh, the four directions and yeah. the Irish spirit wheel? Yes, yeah, that'd be good. Okay, yeah, that, well, it's another place to see how important the sovereignty is, is that, you know, like Native Americans who have medicine wheels, the Irish have a medicine wheel too although it's a little strange to use that phrase, medicine wheel, because it's not exactly what the Irish use. It's a Native American term. But I think most indigenous cultures had some sense that on the horizon are four directions, and each of these directions holds different kinds of power or spirit uh, or value. And in the Irish tradition, the east uh, is prosperity, the south is music, the west is knowledge, the north is battle, and the center is sovereignty or kingship. So that the king who sits in the center is really responsible for this entire wheel. And my own practice over the years has been to use this wheel like Native Americans 
use their medicine wheel, and that is to think about my life as being lived within this sacred circle or horizon. And in the East is prosperity, and when I think about that, I think about the things that I do to make a living and how I make my home and about my family and my neighbors and, uh, you know, the things that make life comfortable and, and pleasing. It's, it's kind of like the work I do and the people that I live among. That's my prosperity. Mm-hmm. In the South, music, I think of that as the, the kind of creativity that um, I bring to enhance life or to enrich life. And it, it's like music has to be played to exist. I love the fact that music doesn't really exist on a CD or on a piece of sheet music. You have to make it come into being. Mm. Sheet music is sort of like a map, perhaps, but it's you know it's not it's not music. So I think when I think about the South, is I think about my obligation to bring things into being, to to create, to to make uh, my life uh, beautiful and sustainable and healthy. In the West is knowledge, and when I think about that, it, the knowledge that the Celts have always valued is what we might call sacred knowledge or wisdom. It's not just knowledge of how to bake a cake or tie your shoe or play tennis, but it's the kind of knowledge that lets you see what the meaning of life is and why you're here, where you came from, and uh, what you're supposed to do. So it's more like wisdom, actually. It's more like sacred knowledge. And uh, I look to the West in my own life to see you know, what, what my life is about, what life in general is about, and why am I here, and questions like that. And then in the North is battle. And uh, fortunately, I don't have too many battles going on in my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But in some ways, I do have to uh, struggle, as everybody struggles. There are challenges. There are things that you know, get in my way. And one of the phrases that's used a lot in the old stories about the North is rough places, that the North is also the direction it has rough places. And I think I could say almost every day of my life there are rough places somewhere in the course (laughs) of the day. So even though the North is battle and it sounds like war and warriors and soldiers, it has a much more... uh, homey meaning when you just stop and think about what are your challenges every day? Uh, what are the things that uh, give you rough places to get across? So those are the four directions, and that's kind of how I I think about my life. But then when I come to the center, I am confronted with this sovereignty figure that I'm in charge. You know, I'm the king of my life, you could say. I'm the ruler of my life. And if I embrace my sovereignty, it means I'm going to take responsibility for my life. And taking responsibility for my life means being responsible for each of those four directions so that I can't just uh, expect someone else to do all these things for me. And I think also that just like the king who has to be listening to the goddess of the land, I have an obligation too as a, as a spiritual man, as, as a shaman, to be listening to what the land says, what the land needs, so that my uh, my life is uh, not selfish, but is lived in accordance with the, the laws of nature and the, the laws of the spirit world. 
so that's, it's another place where we can find uh, sovereignty. Well, I think understanding the substance of sovereignty is, first of all, it's really important. And second of all, it's, there's a lot of subtlety in this that isn't illuminated on first pass. No, it's not. And, and I think it has a lot to do with the divine feminine and, uh, and, and sustainability and non-duality. I mean, there's a lot in there. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, yeah. so, so if, could you tell us, tell a story about, I think it's Sir Gawain mm-hmm. uh, and his encounter. If, if it's the story of Dame Ragnell. Is that the one you're thinking of? Uh, yeah, they're out and they, they meet this woman who insists that somebody has to marry her. The story backs up a little bit that Arthur one day is out, you know, riding through the, the forest. And there are different versions of the story, but he ends up being challenged by this green knight. And uh, they have a, a sword fight, and they fight all day long. And the green knight wins, and he's ready to uh, take off Arthur's head. And uh, Arthur pleads for uh, mercy. And the green knight says, well, I'll let you live but I'm going to give you a riddle. And if you can solve the riddle in a year and a day, come back, tell me the answer, and I won't take off your head. If you don't have the right answer, then I will chop off your head. So Arthur says, okay, what's the riddle? And the Green Knight says, it's a question. What does a woman want most in all the world? And Arthur thinks, oh, boy, this is going to be a toughie. <laughs> and he goes back to Camelot, and his nephew, Sir Gawain, says, well, I'll help you. And so for the, a whole year, they ride through the realm, and they ask all kinds of women, what is it a woman wants most in all the world? And they hear lots of different answers. Some say they want uh, beauty, some want money, some want a good husband or a good lover, healthy children, um, long life. Arthur and Gawain know that really none of these is, is the answer that the Green Knight's looking for. So a year and a day go by, and they have a bunch of answers, but they don't think any of them is the correct one. But being honorable men, they go back to that clearing in the woods where the Green Knight is for uh, the, the rendezvous with them. And as they're going, they come across a hideously ugly woman that they haven't met before. And they think, well, maybe we should ask her. She may know. So they ask her, and she says, yes, I do know what the answer is that a woman wants most in the world. But she said, I'll only give it to you if you let me marry this handsome young knight here, Sir Gawain. And so uh, Sir Gawain says, I'll gladly marry this hideous woman (laughs) if she can give us the right answer. And so they make the deal, and the woman whispers the answer into Arthur's ear, and he thinks, oh, that is it. That's the answer. So they continue on and meet the Green Knight. And the Green Knight says, well, what did you find out? What does a woman want most in the world? And Arthur says, she wants sovereignty. And the Green Knight says, that's that's right. And so Arthur keeps his head, and uh, Sir Gawain has to marry this loathly woman. Sometimes the name of the story is the, the loathsome damsel or the loathly woman because she's hideous and ugly and smells bad and looks like she's been homeless for about the last 10 years. So they go back to court and Gawain, and they find out her name. Her name is Dame Ragnall. And so Dame Ragnall and Sir Gawain marry 
And on the first night of their marriage, uh, Dame Ragnall is in her room preparing for the evening, and uh, Gowan is preparing the wedding bed for her. And when she comes out, she's the most attractive woman he's ever seen. And he said, who are you? And she says, I'm Dame Ragnall, who you married this afternoon. And he says, but you don't look like her. And she says, no, I don't. She says, I've been under a spell. And half the time I must appear to be hideous and loathly and repulsive. And the other half I can look like myself, which is how you see me now. And uh, she says to him, so you, you have a choice. You can have me beautiful during the day, and everyone at court will admire me and admire you and think, my, how lucky you are to have such a beautiful wife. But at night, I'll be ugly and hideous to sleep with. Or, she said, you could have me hideous during the day, and people will feel sorry for you, and they'll shun you, and they won't let me around. But at night, I'll be wonderful to sleep with. So what do you want? And Sir Gowan says, well, this really affects you more than me. So what do you want? And as soon as he says that, she lets out this gorgeous smile and says, you've broken the spell. I don't have to be ugly at all anymore. And what broke the spell was sovereignty, that he let her be in charge of her own life. So it, it's a wonderful story. And the, the wife of Bathtail in Chaucer is very similar. And you can find this kind of story in uh, other cultures too. But um, the, the wisdom teaching behind this story is that this is what not just women, but everyone wants. They want to be in charge of their own life. They want to make the decisions that most affect them. And uh, by allowing her to have sovereignty, to be sovereign, Sir Gawain, in effect, breaks the spell that she's been living under. So that's the story of Dame Ragnall, and, you know, another little place where it, it seems to be important, and, and especially important in a personal way, because Dame Ragnall is not a queen, and she's not married to the king, and it's not about politics or sovereignty in that sense. It's simply about being uh, responsible for yourself and uh, being able to take charge of your own life. In other words, to live with dignity and self-confidence, uh, which is what sovereignty is really about. That's, I love that story. So, yeah. okay, so, so for right now, uh, let's take a short break, and then we'll, we'll be right back. We'll be back with more spirited conversation between John and Tom Cowan after this short break. We hope you're enjoying this broadcast of Firefly Willows L-I-V-E on Blog Talk Radio. For information on Firefly Willows, please explore our website, fireflywillows.com, or like us on Facebook. Welcome back. This is Convergence. I'm your host, John Carousella, and in this spirited conversation, I'm speaking with Tom Cowan, author of Fire in the Head. Tom, uh, it was a great story about uh, Sir Gowan and Dame Ragnall and sovereignty. Um, you have another one uh, in, your, in your basket of tricks. Yeah, there's uh, another story, and there are several variations on this, and more than just one story, but the, the basic plot is the same in all of them, and it's, it's about five brothers or three brothers, and they're kind of young men, maybe adolescent, teenage types, and they're the sons of a king or a, a chieftain, so they're like nobles or princes, and they're out in the wilderness on a very miserable night, 
camping, so they get a little fire going. And uh, it really is a bad night. The wind is blowing, it's cold, and sleeting. And they're huddled around the fire trying to keep warm. When uh, all of a sudden they sense there's someone else kind of coming out of the darkness and stepping into the, the glow of the, the fire. And when they look, it turns out to be this fantastically hideous woman, just like in the story of Dame Ragnell. Uh, she smells bad, she looks bad, she's loathsome, she's repulsive. She looks like she's been homeless for 10 years or more. And she asks for hospitality. She wants to be able to spend the night there by the fire where it's warmer. And the older brothers all say no to her. They say, no, go on, you know, stay to yourself. You, don't, you have no right to be here. But, you know, they basically don't want to share it with this loathsome woman. But the youngest brother, it's always the youngest brother in this kind of tale, uh, follows her before she gets away and says, uh, just don't, don't leave yet. You can come and you can lie by me and I'll, I'll keep you warm for the night. So she does. And in some versions of the story, he just embraces her and gives her a good night kiss. In some versions of the story, he makes love to her. And in the morning when he wakes up, she's lying there, but like in the Dang Ragnell story, She's the most beautiful woman he's ever seen. And he says, who are you? And she says, well, I'm, I'm the woman you gave comfort to last night. And he says, but you don't look like her at all. And she says, but I am. And he says, what's your name? And she says, sovereignty. And then she disappears. But she sees to it, since she's the goddess of sovereignty, she's the goddess of the land, she sees to it that he becomes the next king rather than his older brothers or the next chief, whichever the story is about. So here's a, another tale where um, sovereignty you know, wants to be embraced and is, is a representative of the great mother goddess, the divine feminine, that needs to be embraced and needs to be honored. And it's only a man or a young boy who does that, who's really fit to become the next king or the next chief. And, you know, one of the things uh, that people often ask is, well, you know, why is she always so hideous? I mean, why does she have to be ugly in these stories? And there are different answers to this. The, one that I, the ones that I find to be uh, the most insightful is that you're afraid of her. When you see her, your natural... Uh, reaction is to say, go away, I don't have anything to do with you. There's something scary and, and fearful about her. And this might be an insight, kind of a psychological insight into sovereignty, in that it is scary to think that you're in charge of your own life, that you have to take responsibility. You can't blame anyone else. You know, it, It's you. So that initial uh, reaction might be that we're, we're scared. And in some of the stories like this one where it's about a young boy or a young man, part of that fear might also be the fear of growing up, of becoming an adult and having to take on the responsibilities of adulthood. Uh, or in the case of, you know, the young prince, the story of the fear of having to uh, take on the responsibilities of the kingdom. But once you embrace it, that seems to be the message there, that by embracing it and accepting it and saying, uh, you know, I, I will love you, that it suddenly becomes beautiful. And uh, sovereignty really is uh, someone who enriches your life and 
brings beauty into your life. So anyway, the sovereignty. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's I think that's um, that's a really important part of this uh, of the whole concept of of sovereignty and and this is why I think it it sort of transcends transcends duality because it we in these stories we're looking upon the other and we're finding it ugly and uncomfortable and fearsome yeah but when we embrace that otherness in spite of our reaction to it mm-hmm. it ceases to become other yeah yeah, that, that is the message, though, that, you know, sovereignty means you have to embrace other people's sovereignty, too, and acknowledge that it's not about being selfish or, you know, being lacking concern for anyone else. You have to honor and embrace the sovereignty of others. One definition of sovereignty that I like a lot is that sovereignty supposes that each person has a secret unknown center or life that others should respect. You know, each of us in some ways uh, is an unknown. As you're saying, it's the other. It can all often be scary or frightening because it's the unknown. But when you stop and think about that each person, the unknown in them is their secret life. It's, you know, it's their center. It's, it's what makes them who they are. It's their heart song. And we need to embrace that and honor that. Mm. Yeah, we do. And when we do, the loathsomeness of the world disappears. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we we get a very different experience of the rough places. Yes. Do you know what I mean? It's like uh, when we embrace the land, when we when we embrace the mother, the creation, or whatever you you know, however you want to talk about it, and allow ourselves to receive that which is, as opposed to trying to control and limit that which we receive. Right. If we embrace and engage without reservation, without fear, Mm -hmm. there's something that happens to our own capacity to be sovereign. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. It's like we release tension. We let go of a particular kind of tension that exists between us and the other, which creates the discomfort that causes us the pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, too, part of that tension is uh, what you might think of as distortion, that initially in these stories the other appears to be repulsive, but it's because you're you're really not seeing who that person is. Yeah, exactly. The other person is, is off and, and it's like to use your word, it's other. But then as soon as you embrace it, you know, that the distortion goes away and you begin to see, you know, the beauty that this other person has because they too are a human being just like you. Okay. All right, Tom, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I had hey, a great, you, great time and uh, we'll, I, hopefully we'll have a chance to share more of your wisdom soon. So Tom can be reached at... Uh, riverdrum.com is there any other way that uh, you would encourage folks to get to you no that's that's a good way to, to start all right wonderful thanks tom we'll talk okay. again soon thanks for watching i i enjoyed it 
A personal tarot reading can offer you insight, information, enlightenment, and empowerment along your life's path. Hi-C is a professional tarot conversationalist and ritualist with over 10 years' experience. He's available for readings in a variety of formats, including parties and events. To schedule your personal tarot reading, contact Hi-C at tarotbyhi-c.net or email him at hic at fireflywillows.com. Welcome back to Convergence. I'm John Carousella. So we've been talking about uh, personal sovereignty and self-discipline and control and things like that. I, w- I wanted to sh- share a little bit of a, I guess it was a thought exercise, a, a contemplation that I, I took myself through, mostly around, I guess, just being a parent and, and being a, a, a human in our culture and and working through all the challenges that exist in our in our way of life, and you know, so I was I was digging around in my psyche, contemplating the many ways that I tried to assert control uh, or wanted to have control in my life, whether it was control over my uh, the circumstances for my children or or my work environment. Certainly, you know, a desire to protect myself and my loved ones from harm and so on and so forth. Now, this is typical stuff. Almost, you could say, basic assumptions about the world. You know, of of course we want to have some control over things. It's normal, you'd say. But for some reason that I wasn't satisfied, you know, uh, I wanted to, to know more. It seems that whenever I see something that's supposed to be normal, but leads to behaviors that that aren't, like being a control freak uh, in this case, or suffering from obsessive compulsive disorder. You know, I have to question the assumptions. So I probed around a little bit, and I asked myself, why do I want control? It seems like an obvious question, but I let it be a non-obvious question. I approached it, I guess, with with beginner's mind, and I came to the conclusion that I that I wanted control because I wanted to protect myself. And in part because I want to get what I want. Okay, so I want to get what I want and I, I want to protect myself. But why is control the answer? Why is control the solution to that? What assumption am I making about the world that compels me to see control as the appropriate solution? And in fact, as I looked at it, I came to the conclusion that I was seeking control because I was acting out of fear that my desired outcome wouldn't just come naturally to me, wouldn't just naturally come into being. I want to protect my kids from bad things, so I try to control their environment. I want to make sure that I have enough food to eat, so I try to control my work environment to ensure that I can keep my job. I want to make sure that my girlfriend, father-in-law, or neighbors think highly of me, so I try to control my image etc., etc., etc. The list, the list is infinite. What lies beneath this, all this controlling is fear. Fear of not getting what I want. I try to control the environment so that I don't have to experience fear. I say it's fear because if I wasn't afraid of a different outcome, I wouldn't try to influence the game, right? Now, maybe it's fear, maybe it's discomfort. It's a matter of degree, really. But what I was going for was the baseline behavior motivation, which when, you know, if you cast it in the strongest, highest contrast light, is fear. 
Now, trying to control everything is actually really hard. It's very stressful. It sucks, frankly. What's worse is that it's mostly an illusion anyways. You, you can't control the weather. You know, we can't control the price of milk. We can't control the influences on our children when they're in school or texting or on the Internet. And trying creates more danger and more dysfunction as we are really, in effect, attempting to coerce the environment, which in this case is the whole world to one degree or another, into a shape that meets our expectations, into a shape that does our bidding. Well, that doesn't work. We're not smart enough and we're not powerful enough to really know what the right environment is and to successfully craft it. So we layer control on top of control on top of control, each time attempting to correct the unintended consequences of our previous layer of controls. Well, I had built enough layers of control to realize that I was exhausting myself and not really achieving the desired results anyway. So, in this process, I began looking for an alternative. I started back at first principles. What was I really trying to do? Fundamentally, I was trying to exist in the world without feeling fear. But now, let's take the technique of control off the table. So what could I do that would allow me to be in the same kind of situations but not experience the fear? Said differently, what would this scene look like where all those forces were being brought to bear on me and yet I felt no fear? One answer is that I could be numb, you know, senseless in a very deep way. Obviously, that wasn't what I was looking for. But then the other answer came to me in one word. That word was mastery. I couldn't control all of these environmental conditions, all the variables and all the circumstances. But I could have mastery in my response to them. And if I had perfect mastery perfect dexterity and agility in the presence of all these conditions and in the conditions leading up to the conditions, I would have mastery in the situation without experiencing any fear. So I contemplated this. A continuum of mastery would lead me to a state of complete compatibility, oneness really, with my environment without ever having to control anything external to myself. Now, interact, yes, of course, certainly. Interact with things, but not control them. So now I endeavor to seek mastery. Control is an illusion. Mastery, mastery, if not achievable, is certainly approachable. And it comes from within myself. I find it a better investment and a more reliable partner in achieving serenity and satisfaction in the world. And at one point in this exercise, toward the very end, I was led to an image, and from the image to a phrase. The surfer does not attempt to control the wave. The surfer seeks mastery of himself in the presence of the wave. I invite you to try that on. Let me know how it feels. We'll be right back. 
And now, in our next segment, stay with us for an original composition on the Native American flute and a poem. Attributed, but I found it in the Book of Runes by Ralph Blum. God within me, God without, how shall I ever be in doubt? There is no place where I may go, and not there see God's face, not know I am God's vision and God's ears. So through the harvest of my years, I am the sower and the sown. God's self unfolding and God's own. To learn more about today's guests or one of the topics discussed, go to fireflywillows.com slash L-I-V-E. And for more information about Firefly Willows L-I-V-E upcoming shows, visit our page at blogtalkradio.com slash fireflywillows L-I-V-E. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. 
Next week, join Heisey Lutmers and John Carousella for live on-air readings. They'll be consulting the tarot, runes, and animal medicine to offer guidance for your questions. This is Deb Carousella. Please join us next Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, Blog Talk Radio.